Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape during week 59 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a panoramic view of a Lego Jurassic Park mansion. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today for over 40 years, a driving force in the public knowledge and the public imagination regarding the natural world, especially in regard to space. Along with Carl Sagan, she wrote the original Cosmos series, which aired in 1980, and along with collaborators such as host Neil deGrasse Tyson and executive producer Seth MacFarlane, she has revived the series for a new generation of viewers. Season 3 of Cosmos, entitled Possible Worlds, makes its network debut on Fox this Tuesday, September 22nd. Hello and welcome, Andrianne. Hi, Mike. It's great to be with you. I am uh, so happy to have you here with me, particularly today when science and space is in the news and in the headlines. What do you make of these preliminary reports? There's life on Venus. Well, of course, they thrilled me because yeah. they all relate back to Carl Sagan and Harold mm -hmm. Horowitz's landmark paper on the subject. And, you know, I, I take particular glee in this because one of the things, uh, you know, the kind of abuse that always used to be heaped at Carl was that he was so, uh, so speculative. And yet, I am watching as the years pass, as one of those speculations after another informs the science of today. And there is no better definition of a really great scientist when three generations and two generations later, scientists are still chewing on their ideas. It's really, uh, it, to me, it's enormously gratifying. And I can't wait to find out if these phosphines are really from a biological source or from some, you know, even if they're from some other source, it will still be another mystery solved. So I can't wait to see what happens. Well, one thing that the Cosmos series reminds us of is scientists, like artists in a lot of ways, have this second chance lottery where if you die with your work unheralded, there's a chance that you were totally wrong, but there was a chance that you were more right than maybe even you imagined. Exactly. That's the thrilling thing. And of course, because the edifice of science is this generation binding enterprise where instead of just repeating the stuff that somebody thousands of years ago thought, Science is constantly performing this error-correcting mechanism, and that allows it to discover the people who didn't get a fair deal, because the truth will out. And if you really, if you, if you, you actually stumble upon it, then all credit to you, even if it's too late for you, for your you personal to personal life, right? For you, for you to get a bunch of awards for it. That's right. Awards, a bunch of invitations. They don't come. Yeah. But look, it's still better than us never getting to the bottom of it in, in at all. 
And of course, that's the important thing. Um, I have an eight-year-old son, and when <laughs> lockdown when lockdown started, oh yeah, can you tell by the this is not my bedroom, believe it or not. <laughs> we had no idea. We had no idea when we put the router in his room how how, how uh, meaningful that was going to be to my radio career. So when lockdown started back in spring, we sat down and we watched a bunch of the, the most recent season, the last season of Cosmos. We're all looking forward to season three. What, in a nutshell, would you say is the theme of this season? Well, it matters what's true is the theme of every season of Cosmos, all three of them. But this season... It's not just the case for science, it's the case for the future. It's a vision of the future that we can still have. It's not too late, but we cannot waste another minute sleepwalking and fooling around. We have to get to work right now as all of the climate events that we are witnessing in our horror attest to. So this new season is going to take you far into the human future. It will take you to the 2039 New York World's Fair. It will show you what's possible. And of course, the title is Possible Worlds. We're living in a golden age of exoplanet discovery. And so, of course, we're going to visit some of those places, too. That's right. Well, there's the double meaning to the title of the possible worlds that are out there, but there's the possible outcomes for our own world. The idea of this hypothetical 2039 World's Fair that you mentioned plays a considerable role in the new series. Tell me about this 2039 World's Fair. Well, it was at the 1939 World's Fair that a five-year-old child whose parents live paycheck to paycheck, working class, and whose horizons were very dim. And 1939 is on the eve of the greatest bloodletting in human history, the Second World War, the Holocaust. But it's also a time when we haven't yet climbed out of the global depression. And so these are really hard times. And what's so amazing to me is that that civilization put its money on the future and created a dream of the future that little five-year-old Carl Sagan was taken with his parents. No money for lunch, no money for tchotchkes. All they could have was this little brown bag lunch. But it was at that World's Fair that he discovered that there was such a thing called science and there was such a thing called the future. And the only way you could get to the future was through science. And that was the beginning of his lifelong trajectory. So we're celebrating a kind of a dream of the future that's not, you know, pie in the sky baloney, but, but the kind of future that we can have if we use our genius for science and high technology with wisdom. There is a sizable and very vocal, um, I'd like to think it's minority of Americans who seem openly hostile to science. At, at times, that minority seems to include our president. When you first made the, the first season of Cosmos 40 years ago, could you have imagined that this would be such a presence, such a part of American society in 2020? And um, how do you think we've gotten here and how do we fix that? Uh, well, there have always been voices uh, of fear against science. But when you think about it, science is just a body of knowledge, but more than that, it's a methodology 
for finding out what's real and what's not. That's what it does. And it does it so well that it can take a human civilization from a first look through a telescope in 1609 to an interstellar mission in the 1970s. That's less than 400 years. Why? Because it's so efficient. It works. It's constantly slashing away at those things that aren't true. The proof is now, in the pudding. Yes. Now, if you fear reality and you fear truth, then of course you don't want people using science. It's the most efficient tool we have. And I think that a lot of the resentment, hostility towards science some of it can be laid at the door of the scientific community and the way that it punished those scientists who dared to share this secret, secret knowledge with the public. That was career suicide for a lot of scientists. And in a democracy, that's untenable because our, our civilization is dependent on science and high technology. And if only a tiny few of us are informed decision makers, that's a recipe for a disaster where people are at the mercy of every nonsense, every, you know, there's only one way to figure these things out. And of course, if you have a, an earth facing climate change and a mass pandemic, then the people who would, who would direct you away from science are doing the most lethal thing they could possibly do. I want to talk about these, and, and I get what you're saying, these perhaps unlikely but still plausible visions of the future where we found our way out of this mess to to a brighter world with the help of science. But just so I understand what the stakes are, um, I have two children under 10. Many scientists believe the Earth has entered this new age, the Anthropocene, the period through w in which human activity is the dominant influence on the climate and on the environment, if unchecked. Not even worst case scenario, just if we stay the course, what sort of world would I be expecting them to live in, assuming they live, you know, the, the breadth of the 21st century? Well, I'm glad you asked, Mike, because we have a whole episode in which we take a baby born on the day that the episode premieres. It's called Coming of Age in the Anthropocene. And we mm -hmm. take that little girl, that newborn baby, through her life and what will un how it will unfold if we do precisely as you said and don't get our act together. And that's followed by a much happier episode with an alternative future. But, but this is what we're in for. You know, some of the scenes that we shot for coming of age in the Anthropocene, we had, you know, it was before the pandemic. And so we had no idea that some of the tableaus that we entered in that future we would be there in less than a year. So that's the shocking thing about it, is that there is no time to waste. We cannot, we cannot take refuge in fantasy and in turning away from this reality, each of us, in our every single way we can. We have to do everything we can now, because you, in order to be able to look those two kids in the eye, you have to be able to say to yourself, what do I do today? to make this world less uninhabitable than, than, than it is if we do nothing. 
Overall, I think most of the governments of the world have responded in a fairly mature and rational way to to COVID-19. I would not say that about much of the government in America. That has solidified a belief that I pretty much had already arrived at that I don't think I can count on, I don't even know about myself and, and, and my fellow Americans to take the steps that we need to take to reverse the effects of climate change. I know that's not your specific area of scientific expertise, but it solidified my suspicion that the change kind of will only come if somebody invents some sort of carbon neutralizing or removing device. Am I being overly pessimistic in that, in your opinion? No, I, we can, we can, I mean, that would be nice. I would, I'd sure. like that. I would go for that. That would be nice, but we can't count on that. And your children's lives are too important to base it on that one hope it could happen and um, you know obviously there's no uh, only a fool would would foreclose any of the scientific possibilities but we do know what we could stop doing right now that's what we have to do we can't wait for someone to save us from ourselves not even a scientist we have to save ourselves and that means action now thinking about you know the energy we use, the cars we drive. I don't have to tell you, your audience knows all of this. Uh, in the very first Cosmos, 40 years ago this month, it premiered and we did a whole episode on, on what we were doing to the Earth. And the, the cautionary tale was the planet Venus, which had a runaway greenhouse effect and turned a beautiful, very nice planet with oceans and everything in a matter of, you know, first two billion years, perfect, great. But in a matter of time, it turned it into a place where lead melts on the surface. And the first person on earth to know that was Carl Sagan. It was his PhD thesis when he was 25. He figured out what happened to Venus, coined the phrase, runaway greenhouse effect. And from that moment on, for the rest of his life, he did everything he could to alert people to this danger. And, you know, we all know it now. You know, there was a long period of time when the governments, the oil companies, everybody, they lied, they did what they always do in order to, to retain their freedom to make money. But let me ask you, you know, Let's say you're a one-celled organism, entry-level life form. If you destroy your environment, you're failing at the most basic level of life. And that's what we're doing right now. Well, and it's probably a failure, and some would argue it's an evolutionary failure of the human mind to be able to act on the distant future. Nobody would burn their house down, because that would be a crazy thing to do, but you'll do things that might affect you 30, 40, 100 years from now. Now, I'm under the opinion, now, I, I drive a Tesla and I recycle, and I could pat myself on the back for that, but I'm under the impression that I should never fly on a plane unless it's for a deeply essential reason like a death in the family or something right. like that or ever or ever go on a cruise ship ever in my never, entire never, life never. that that seems like a great place to start i am definitely prepared to say neither of those industries are going anywhere anytime soon do you agree or disagree with that any of that i don't know about the cruise industry i think as we mm. become more alert to the ruining of the oceans i mean what kind of species we have beautiful planet, big oceans, the Pacific, it's gigantic. And we, we mess it up for the other life forms. 
And, you know, I think it's wonderful for everybody to go and see the world. It's a beautiful thing. But the fact is, is that the volume of destruction is not, is, is much greater than the benefit to the planet, to the species, to other species. We have to begin to weigh those. We have to think of different ways to make that experience possible. It's not tenable. And frankly, because of pandemics, I think that a lot of people have a tremendous amount of reluctance to do that anyway, because they've seen how many people got stuck on those ships because, because of pandemics. So I, um, you know, I think it's, we have to, we have to reevaluate the way we live. And maybe that includes cruising and vacationing. But is that so much to give up? Maybe this is just a transitional period in which we have to figure out other ways of doing those things. But we can't keep on keeping on as the entire western coast of the United States is showing us and has shown us for years now. A line from episode one of the new series of Cosmos Possible Worlds, our ship of the imagination is propelled by twin engines of skepticism and wonder. The wonder part is self-explanatory. Can you explain the role, as you see it, that skepticism plays? Oh, the skepticism is as important as the wonder. Equally, they're equally important. The skepticism is the usage of this methodology of science, five simple rules that we give as the boilerplate uh, every season of Cosmos. And they're, they're so simple. We can, I've, I use them in my personal life in varying degrees, and it's very effective, actually. But these are ways of knowing what's true, because imagination is great, and we come from 10,000, 100,000 years of great storytellers whose imagination has, has done so much for the human experience. But you can only get to Mars and the planets beyond and the stars with science. Science and imagination both. You could, you know, you could be looking up in the sky forever and imagining anything you want. If you want to know what's really out there, if you want to pull back the curtain of night to see those other worlds, you can't do it without science. I want to ask you about uh, space travel and, you know, potential for the human colonization of space. When you ask people, you know, generally learned generalist type people, if they think alien civilizations exist, you commonly hear the answer, well, the universe is so vast. Mathematically speaking, it seems like there must be. From a more informed scientific perspective, is there a more informed scientific answer that you have to that question? No. No. <laughs> some inner word no i don't because you know in the absence of evidence we can't make any conclusions but um just as you said it's a very big place and uh and you know to me i'm not concerned about the fermi paradox personally you know this idea of like well if they if they exist they should have been here by now i don't think that at all first of all Agreed. the amount of of energy involved in interstellar, let alone intergalactic travel, is onerous, very difficult. And second of all, you know, we've only been able to receive, let's say, a radio message for what, 150 years? Well, the Earth is, you know, four and a half billion years old. And 
we could have been bombarded, uh, and life itself is four billion years old, we could have been bombarded at any of those times with the most complex radio messages, we wouldn't have known a thing. Further, it took us, you know, until 150 years ago to figure out radio. And there may be other means of communication that we haven't tumbled to yet. We just don't know yet. So I say it's a really big universe. And we've only even scientifically approached this subject for less than a single lifetime. So I am, my mind is wide open, you know, whether it's phosphines indicating life in the clouds of Venus or somebody who has a manifesto they'd like to share with us. I am wide open to all the possibilities. What is your personal attitude toward space colonization? Will it happen? When, where, and to what extent? I would like to impose a one-woman embargo on space colonization until we get our act together here. Mm. We have not demonstrated that we know how to treat a world. And so, uh, you know, it really concerns me. You know how curious I am. You know how fascinated I am by the cosmos. It's not like that I'm just a stay-at-home. It's that I, I look at what we're doing to this planet. And I feel like we have to get our house in order before we have the arrogance to set foot on other worlds. The moon was okay because we weren't really, you know, bothering anyone. But a world like Mars... It's kind of ours. Yeah. Hey, a world yeah. like Mars is something different. And when I see these plans, you know, and I, I've imagined them myself, and, and I understand the, the, the pull and the excitement. But not till we clean our own nest. Commercial space travel, at least, seems tantalizingly close to becoming a reality. Have you personally made a reservation to visit space? No, no I'm a mother. I'm a grandmother. I'm sticking right here. I love this planet. I hate the <laughs> idea of you know breathing like fake air forever, and uh, and the claustrophobia. No, I'm perfectly happy to stay here. I love this place. Earthbound. Earthbound. I have um, one question for you that's way out of left field. I saw something on your Wikipedia that uh, piqued my curiosity. I'm going to put you on spot with something from deep in your past that may not even be accurate because it's from Wikipedia. I read that as a young adult, just after school, you developed an interest in pre-Socratic philosophers. Does this ring a bell? Is this truthful? This is absolutely right. Okay, so I'm aware that Socrates obviously did not invent Western philosophy, came from an existing tradition, but he didn't leave any written record. We know what we know of him because of Plato and Aristotle. So what do we know of the guys who came, and I'm assuming they were guys, who came before Socrates, and what did you find so compelling about them? Oh, okay, well, let me start with the last part. What I found so compelling about them, and that's how I found them in the first place, was I was interested in discovering who... Who were the first people who did not resort to the gods or God as an explanation for what happens, you know, when the thunders and the lightning and stuff like that? Who were the first people who, in a, in a concerted way, said, there must be an explanation for this in nature and let's find it? Those are the great pre-Socratics. Uh, I think of Democritus. Uh, who intuited the existence of atoms, which I'll never understand, is so 
brilliant. And I think of Hippocrates, who was the first person to to say that we think of epilepsy as a sacred disease because we don't understand its cause. But someday we will understand its cause. And just as quickly, it will no longer be considered divine. This is the breaking of the shackles of helplessness. To say, let's figure it out and let's look at what happens in nature and try to understand it is, is, what is, is clearly one of the greatest revolutions in thought. And it was these merchant philosophers of the islands in the Ionian Sea. Why them? Because people were coming from the east and the west and everywhere to trade with them. And because they didn't have a strong centralized government, and because they had the kind of openness that one has when one meets people from all different kinds of places, they were able to open this way that we have already taken to the stars. That's an amazing thing. That's why I love them. And uh, Socrates is pretty great. I'm not too crazy about Plato, but these pre-Socratic philosophers, who Plato hated, by the way, because they were mm. not, because they were not aristocrats, and because they believed they should roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty by experimentation, this offended him, because he was an aristocrat who had slaves. If I uh, can wrap things up on a little bit of a hippy dippy note here, I know you're not too far from Woodstock right now. I'm um, never too I, far from Woodstock. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you know we all get caught up, and I'm sure you do to some extent too, in in the news of the day and the goings on of the day, and that can drag us down. I feel like it must be wonderful spending so much of your life pondering the nearly imponderable vastness and splendor of space and of the natural world. In what ways do you find personally? that that sort of life, uh, leading that sort of life, affects and informs your sense of self and your sense of the meaning of life? Wow. Well, it gives you perspective, you know? If you see yourself as just a link in a chain that's four billion years long, and if you understand that you live on a pale blue dot, lost somewhere in the immensity, and you realize just how brief life is. We get a hundred years maybe, if we're lucky, very lucky. Well, we're mayflies. We, we live so briefly. And yet, to be able to have this understanding of nature and the cosmos and the romance, the beauty, the gorgeousness of being alive is is very uplifting for me. You know, I mean, the universe is 13.8 billion years old. The future of the universe could be as much as a trillion years. And here we are, you and me, your audience, we're alive right this moment. And I guess that makes you feel so powerfully that you want that moment to count. Thank you so much for uh, for your time and for your thoughts, Andrea. And Cosmos Season 3, Possible Worlds, makes its network debut on Fox this Tuesday, September 22nd. Thank you. 
That was great, Mike. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. I really hope we get another chance sometime. Let's do it. Okay, next season. Okay, great. More to come on The Tully Show. Up next, editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News, John Micklethwaite, has co-authored a new book entitled The Wake-Up Call, Why the Pandemic Has Exposed the Weakness of the West and How to Fix It. I'll be speaking to John after this. Welcome back to The Tully Show. My next guest is the former editor-in-chief of The Economist, current editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News, and most importantly for our present purposes, co-author of a new book, along with former Economist colleague Adrian Woolridge, entitled The Wake-Up Call, Why the Pandemic Has Exposed the Weakness of the West and How to Fix It. Hello and welcome, John Micklethwaite. Thank you, Mike. Very glad to be here. John, as the title of your book implies, coronavirus and the attendant effects on the economy has provided this unexpected stress test for all of the governments of the world. In your opinion, and the opinion of your co-author, many governments of the West have been found wanting, you say in the book, humiliatingly so. I think they have been found humiliatingly wanting. I think particularly Britain and America, to be really clear about it. I think that um, America is close to 600 deaths per million Britain is above 600 deaths per million from the disease. Germany, which run pretty well, is down around 100 deaths per million. But I think what's interesting is once you look at countries in Asia, um, you look at places like Singapore, Thailand, Taiwan, Korea, Japan, they're all around 10 or 20 deaths per million. It's a fraction of what we've absorbed as countries. They're now open, they're doing well. And that brings us slightly to the second reason for a wake up is look behind those numbers, there's also China. China is at 3.3 deaths per million. Now, you and I might be somewhat quizzical about those numbers, but just imagine for the sake of argument that China is lying and that it's hiding 90% of its deaths. Well, China would still only go up to 30 deaths per million. And at that kind of level, it's still doing a 20 times better job at protecting its people than America. And I think that is a serious wake-up call for a superpower when a country you've always regarded as something that is sort of coming up a long way behind you is able to do things better. What, you know, what began as China's Chernobyl this year has ended up being sort of Washington's Waterloo. I don't know what to make of of China. You say the the numbers might be 90% greater. I say they might be 900% greater. I literally have no idea. I don't know that any of us does. I will tell you this. My mother-in-law in Japan is on vacation right now. I know that. Yes. Yeah. No, no. I mean, Japan, Japan, the, the, the main, I, I made the China point because I think it's so relevant to geopolitics. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think personally, I think the chance of China lying by that level are, are, are just unlikely. There are so many journalists around China that most of, you know, people know in the big cities, Beijing, Shanghai, we have journalists as bases. They're not reporting that there are mass amounts of people in the way they, they, they react pretty savagely whenever there is an outbreak. So we have at least some idea. I still don't just, you know, China had a somewhat murky role in the way things started. But I think the tone of what you're saying is right. It's, it's look at South Korea. Um, and I think there is, and you, you may have suffered from this, is that you, you people have this somewhat strange approach to Asia. They think it must be all to do with Confucian togetherness and all these sort of things. It's not, it's just simply to do with getting testing kit together putting it in the right places, being able to do lockdowns, pushing them through. Seoul is not exactly a kind of old Asian city. It's the home of Parasite, um, which won the Oscar. It's the home of K-pop. It's the home of some of the world's biggest nightclubs. 
and yet it has lost two dozen people, three dozen, I should have checked the exact number. London has lost 6,000 and New York has lost 22,000. So they are doing something better than we are. And we should sit there and try and learn from them. And the reason why it matters, the reason why COVID is a wake up test, is one of those things which is telling you you're not doing as well as you are, is because there are other things they're doing better. You know, Asian schools are outperforming ours. The infrastructure is better. You know, you, you simply have to get on a plane, you go to LaGuardia, and then you go to one of the new airports in Asia. They feel different. Um, Singapore is investing in sort of lampposts which measure the amount of traffic going past. All, all these sort of things they are doing. And I think it is a wake up call because I think there is so many parts of America are wonderful. The private sector is fantastic. Cultures are very, technology are amazing. But so little of that has gone into the public sector. And what COVID reminds us is that government matters. So if you don't have good government, you're going to suffer. I will get into the specifics of your your diagnostics and your prescriptions from the book. But first, you know, as an American, I was sadly not all that surprised that our federal and many of our local governments were not up to the admittedly massive task of implementing a rapid and intelligent response in the early days of coronavirus. I'm slightly more surprised and far more uh, saddened by how many of my fellow countrymen and often the president will still argue this was absolutely not the case. The government response was adequate, if not far more than adequate, and indeed will argue uh, too much was being done and is still being done. Just as someone with a well-informed global perspective, what would you say to anyone in that camp who might be listening? Well, just look at the numbers. I mean, in the end, it is, it, we're in that category, is that you, you can argue about whether some countries count things in different ways to other ones. But the level to which Britain and America have underperformed other, other ones is well beyond any idea of that. And we use the example of New York and Seoul is such an easy one to compare. And that is a failure that I think goes through the whole thing. But it's not, it's something that, Amer it's, it, it is telling America that things are not working Sometimes they're not working. In some cases, they're things that you half knew already, as you said. In other cases, it's sort of simply alerted people to how much things have changed. And, and the point about history is that history does change. 500 years ago, as we say in our book, you know, there was no doubt China was the world's most powerful country. Britain, the country where I live, you know, was, was a somewhat barbaric, bloody place led by people like Henry VIII. If he had visited the court of the emperor, in China, he would have been taught it, treated like a sort of tribal curiosity. It, that back then, China was way, way, way stronger than we were. So were the Ottomans, much more sophisticated government. They were far better. And the West rose, as we detail in the book, by competing, by, by the countries formed. They competed between different nation states. China ossified. When, they, when the Chinese invented gunpowder, they used it for fireworks. We used it to blow the French out of the water and then ultimately tried to blow the Americans not so successfully. And then in the end, um, also tried to blow up the Chinese. But all those things, it helped change the balance of power. And what's happened is since the 1960s, where you go to the 1960s, America was putting a man on the moon and millions of Chinese were dying of starvation. The relative power of those two countries since then has changed. China has got more powerful. They have made there are many things about the Chinese government I do not agree with for obvious reasons as a journalist, but there is no doubt that it has got a more efficient base. It's got better, and they are following at least an element of the Singaporean model. And the Singaporean model is very simple, is you have a much smaller government than even the most libertarian Republican um, uh, 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 congressman would want. But on the other hand, you have one which is way more effective in delivering things for the poor and the healthy, 
in terms of health and education and stuff than Democrats want. So, you know, America needs to some ways poke its head over the parapet and look and see what's happening in other parts of the world. It's not just Asia, but geopolitically Asia is the one that matters. So, right, in the book, you do not uh, lay all the blame for the failure of America's response to coronavirus at Donald Trump's feet. You say a reckoning was coming one way or another would have happened regardless if Joe Biden was president at the same time. This is a product, you say, of a rot that began in American politics. You place it beginning in the 1970s. I think it's sort of nice. More 1960s. It's more like when you look at the 1960s, you think there was a time where several things happened. You still had trust in the American government. Um, you still had the elites participating in American government, which is sadly not stopped. And you had this huge divergence between America and certainly what's happening in Asia. Since then, yes, there have been some amazing moments in American history. There's the fall of the Berlin Wall. There's been some fantastic things that have happened. But in general, the public sector has been run down. The private sector bits have done enormously well. But in terms of government, you know, if you're looking around the world now and you're looking at good government, there are not many parts of the American government you would fix on. And you might argue, and people like me in the past have somewhat argued that this, you know, the government doesn't matter that much. But you, and the private sector is what matters. Well, yes, it's true. But in the end, you do need a functioning government in order to protect you from a disease like COVID. You do need a functioning government in order to provide education, to get health care, to do roads. To, the, the, all these things matter. And so it doesn't matter how great your private sector is, the public sector doesn't work. And that, I think, you know, in the end, you're right. There are many mistakes that Donald Trump has made, but he is not responsible for the state of American schools. He's not responsible for the state of American police. And he wasn't responsible for a healthcare system that doesn't matter who was running it, um, is more glued into looking after the old and the rich rather than the poor. And indeed, uh, to his credit, you say that the tweets often drown out the legitimate reform that he has undertaken. What, in your mind, are some of the legitimate and helpful reforms his administration has undertaken? I think there's not, I mean, some of the stuff, I think some of the deregulation was reasonable. Obviously, some bits were to, you know, liberate environmental things. But so he definitely sped up um, when he first came in. He sped in some elements of, 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 of rules. I think the other thing he did, which I think people will look back on and say, look, well, Trump did get onto something, is I think he did make it clearer to America than any previous president that, that China was adversary that needed to combat trade and things like this. And where I differ from him is in terms of the methods that he's chosen. Because I think if, you're, if you accept Trump's logic that we are sort of in a new Cold War, then you have to look back at the last one. And the way that America won the last one was by bringing in allies making those allies supported, supported that America didn't win the glass cold war alone. It brought in people. And the other thing is to do with the song, song he sings. You know, if you just say America first, you don't bring many people along. If you talk about freedom and liberty and all those things, which America sometimes did hypocritically, but it did always talk about it. I think that makes a huge difference. You look around the world now, the democracies of the world are so much stronger than the autocracies. You know, many of the countries that did best at COVID were democracies. If they united, if they had an America that was prepared to lead them, they, they would be able to negotiate far better trade deals with China. So America first does not help um, the West. 
Right, and you argue in the book that uh, a surprisingly little bit of um, Coca-Cola diplomacy and, you know, the waving the stars and stripes around um, can quickly repair our image. I was surprised to hear you say that, you know, the, the Pew report came out earlier this week about how far U.S. prestige has fallen, although only as far as it was at the end of the uh, the second Bush's administration. It's not a, a new low, and they've only been keeping it for 20 years or so anyway. You have, you know, you are talking to people um, throughout the world. Where is our prestige? And do you really believe it would take just writing the ship to write our prestige? I think, well, I think, no, because I think it needs to, I think writing the ship is quite a big deal. Um, it's not just to do with changing leaders. It's to, it's a, it's, it, you need a, a whole revolution within government, which is what we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. But all the same, you know, America has enormous strengths. Um, you have a private sector as I pointed out before, you have Silicon Valley, you have, it may not be very popular to point this out, you have Wall Street, you have Hollywood, you have some of the most impressive companies in the world, you have some of the greatest military might. By any measure, America is, is, is starts this race ahead, but it's one where other people have very obviously begun to catch up. And the smaller countries, the smaller democracies are doing many of the things that you'd want a government to do much better. So the danger, I think, for America is this, is you, you look back through history, um, what happens to great empires is, yeah, you do have these reversals, you have these defeats, and by any measure, I think, you know, it's very clear to me that COVID has been a defeat for America. Um, 200,000 dead, close to, you know, as I said, close to 600 per million die, have died. That is way more than other places. Tiny countries like Vietnam have done so much better. But so it's not done well. But the key to all great empires is when when these things happen, you react to them. And some empires don't react. And plague is quite an interesting one. You you, you look back at Athens. Athens had a great plague, and it ended up losing to Sparta, partly in consequence of that. Rome had a series of plagues when it went down. But other countries at different times have reacted to it. Much of the welfare state which you and I now use the whole time, was built in part because of pestilence in, in the slums of London and places like that. And Victorian liberals worked out that they needed to do more to make, you know, build health systems and things like that because it was part of trying to make things work. And it was also part of national competition and competing with Germany. The Spanish flu, exactly the same. It made people think about how you deal with these things. So there are, ty- you know, these, these reversals, these defeats, they can cause great countries to suddenly realize what they need to do. And that really is the challenge for America. Right. Crises can present opportunities, uh, as unfortunately authoritarian governments are more than well aware of, but also for, for liberal-leaning people. Diagnosing the issue is a little bit easier than prescribing the cure, and even harder than that is probably implementing the cure in terms of the prescription, you play a thought experiment in the book. You ask yourself what two great historical leaders would do if they were alive today, joined into one man and elected president. One, Abraham Lincoln, should be very well known to my listeners, the other less so. Tell me about the 19th century British Prime Minister William Gladstone in a nutshell. What is the essence of his greatness as a statesman to you? His essence as a greatness of a statesman is that he cared enormously about the poor. He was called the People's William, and he focused what was then called the Liberal government on that. But at the same time, he had an absolute fixation about keeping government as small as possible. So the nice thing about combining him with Lincoln is that you could argue in today's America, they could either be a Republican or a Democrat. They certainly believe with the Democrats in terms of providing good public services, but they 
were far more savage than even the most sort of hardline Republican when it came when it comes to getting rid of perks for the rich. You know, they, they really detested that. They, they saw no point. Gladstone spent the whole of his early life getting rid of all these privileges and exemptions and so on. If he arrived in Congress and saw $1.6 trillion worth of tax breaks and exemptions and all those things, the first thing he would do is get rid of the whole lot and start again. He believed in a budget that you could explain to people the idea that America, nine out of 10 people need an accountant to do your tax return to him would be an abomination. You cannot explain, you cannot explain what government does really simply and what people have to produce it. And he would retarget, I think, so much to America's state towards the poor and needy. And I think Abraham Lincoln would do exactly the same. They came from exactly the same tradition. They believed in, on the whole, being fairly dowdy. Um, Lincoln spent slightly too much on the White House, but on the whole, he came from that tradition. They believed in trying to bring nations together. Lincoln, it cost him his life. Gladstone also believed in that. And they had a basic idea that government was there to help people, particularly help the poor, but not, you know, it was not there to provide things for the rich. So they would be horrified if they looked out and saw that Warren Buffett got a state pension or that Bruce Springsteen got a state pension or coming to my own country that Mick Jagger got a state pension. All yeah. those things would them as abominations. Why, why on earth, why on earth should someone like me even get a, get a state pension? There is no reason. We, we, we don't need them. And right. other people direct these things towards the people who really need them. Make government more simple and above all, bring in good people. You know, bring in good people and pay them well. Do what the Singaporeans do. Singaporeans use, pay a million dollars to the people who run their civil service. America would never dream of doing that. On the other hand, they get rid of bad teachers in a way that Democrats would never dream of doing. The, the, the thing is to have some degree of elite in your public sector. If you do that, it makes a gigantic difference. And I think all those sort of things they, 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 they would care about and push. So yes, it is a bit of a thought experiment, but I would, I would counsel one thing, is that we base it entirely on what works around in other countries. We don't say, come up with some sort of moonshot idea. This is really simple. When we look at healthcare, we look at places like Germany, Singapore, Canada, and just say, look, they do provide better healthcare for a lot less public money, obviously massively less private money by the time you add that in in America than America does. So why not look and and on that issue, we would probably argue for a much bigger state or, or what some people would characterize as a bigger state, which one which did provide free care to all Americans, because I think that's a fundamental right. But on other issues, you know, we would have a much smaller government. I believe that, you know, given truth serum, many, perhaps most politicians would agree with many of your recommendations, limit entitlements, cut out special interests. Everybody here runs on those sorts of things from from both sides. Um, to pick one example that you touch on in the book, when state-funded retirement schemes like Social Security were started, I don't feel like many Americans know this, the retirement age was set higher than the life expectancy at that time. Nobody was really supposed to get this thing, whereas now people like even my parents, you just work to Social Security and then you enjoy perhaps, in my parents' case, a decades-long uh, retirement. There is zero public or governmental appetite to deal with that hard reality, and as you point out, that's where half of the annual budget goes. Now, I believe if any group, if you told me we're going to find enlightened, well-trained, sane adults and we're going to give them free reign to fix the American government— I don't need to know any more. Just have at it. I'm sure you will come up with something better than what we currently have. But as Bismarck famously said, politics is the art of the possible. 
I do not see an appetite for rational reassessment of much of anything coming from either side in American politics. And to the extent that I'm familiar with UK politics, it seems like more or less the situation, the same situation. Do you agree or disagree? Um, I think I, I agree with you about 75 percent. The two two differences. One is a, a kind of um, slightly pedantic. I think I think in Britain there is a bigger group um, in round Boris Johnson, especially I, th- I think so. Sort of, there's a man called Dominic Cummings, who's the, usually seen as the architect of Brexit. Now, he is determined to change British government. Um, you know, I, I was not a supporter of Brexit. In many other ways, he is trying to do something quite interesting. So there is perhaps slightly more here. But, but the reasons why America, I think, will come round to this is partly one, you, you, there's a limit to how long America can sit there staring at its navel um, whilst the rest of the world changes. American business people... Are you sure? Yeah, well, yes, because I think it's a different thing. Somebody the other day put the cost to us, you know, what, what is going to be the difference between America and China? Because China, years ago, you know, Ch- China unbelievably sat there studying Confucius, restudying Confucius, whilst all these amazing ideas around the world were coming out. You know, Newton, Locke, Thomas Paine, Stanley, you know, the webs, all these people came up with new ideas about government, new technologies. China just obsessed about its own world and restudying and studying Confucius. I just don't think that is what America is going to do. I think there's too much of America that is pushed outward. And in the end, America is a very competitive place. And once America starts to realize, actually, it's not doing as well, then it will do better. And I think you've got the push of, of, of business. I'm also somewhat optimistic, and you can say this is crazy. I'm slightly, I'm slightly optimistic about the more elite ends of America. I think COVID really was a shock for people. I think many Americans did not entirely realize just how useless the government was for poor Americans until they really saw, you see people in New York, you see doctors wearing ski goggles, nurses wearing garbage bags because there isn't enough equipment then something has gone wrong. And I think there is more of a sense of, of, of looking at it. But in terms of, do I see someone coming in with a program, even a quarter as imaginative with what we've had? No. But, but again, you know, we just said, use what happened. Sweden, they had exactly the same issue that you described. They settled it by handing over social security to c- commission. They said, you go off and come up with a solution on social security, and then we'll vote on it on a yes down option. Sweden actually sorted out its problem. Britain sorted out its problems to do with pensions. It is possible to do. It's not that difficult. It's basically to do with you raise your retirement age to something vaguely sensible and you do it relatively quickly. Um, and, and part two, you, you, you begin to look at the issue, which I mentioned earlier, of why on earth is Warren Buffett getting a state pension. Right. Yeah, exactly. There should be a cutoff point where if you possess a certain amount of wealth, you no longer need Social Security, nor will you even notice that you're receiving it in the first place relative to the rest of your vast wealth. Are there any positive green shoots? So you you mentioned the examples of, of how other countries have turned it around. If you were to point optimistically to things that are already happening in American politics as green shoots that indicate that what you're saying should happen, might happen, what would they be? I think, I think the bits of green shoots I see in America are more to do, I think partly I'm, I'm intrigued by the way that people responded to our original article in Bloomberg, which called, you know, sponsored this thing, that people, a lot of people suddenly got in contact saying, we didn't know, we didn't think about government in this way. I'm also, but that, that would be a very egotistical answer. I'm intrigued. I think that on the whole, I think mayors and cities are beginning to move in the right direction. There's much more, the mayors tend to be much less partisan and much more focused on making things work. I think there's some movement there. I think there's an element within both the Democratic and Republican parties 
what, that something has got to change. But you're right, it isn't, at the moment, it's not manifesting itself. You can imagine a world where either Joe Biden or Donald Trump gets elected and then the full kind of level of what America has been through. In the end, one big, one big prompt is, is magic, the, the era of magic money. At the moment, there is no pressure from the markets to reform. Um, and at the moment, the markets are prepared to lend America, lend, even countries like Italy are being able to lend money. But history teaches you that on the whole, the markets don't keep doing this forever. There's a very good, there's a nice quote in the Hemingway book where somebody asks somebody, how did, how did you go bankrupt? And the guy says two ways, slowly at first and then very rapidly. Well, America, on many counts, all the things you mentioned, social security, all these things, America, is, is it's not well-funded. And God knows it's worse at the local level. So at some point, that is going to become an issue, and that will be another prompt. Um, it appears the book was completed uh, around about July. Um, would you, this is obviously a fluid, rapidly changing situation. Would you change or update anything based on the events that have happened since then? I think you do. I, for instance, I didn't know about the Pew survey, which you just told me about. I think those sort of things you would put in. Um, there was in Britain, somebody pointed out that the numbers have changed. Uh, they, Britain recalculated their numbers. So they've gone from being truly dreadful to dreadful. <laughs> Congratulations. First in the world, other than Belgium, but it, they're, they're less bad than they were. No, I think I, I think the only bit um, that you you might do is I think you would make more of a case to the two presidential candidates. Actually, this is something that they're going to have to think about. And actually, I think particularly to Joe Biden in this respect, I don't think these kind of big ideas are not necessarily Donald Trump's zone. Although I do think I think some people around Jared Kushner, etc., do look at these as 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 ideas to go for. I do I think more on the Democrat side is if you're Joe Biden, I think there's too much of a focus on getting into power. But when, when he arrives there, he will have a public sector that needs to be changed. And he has the problem that the Democratic Party is so intensely linked to public sector unions at the moment. So sometimes in, in rugby, there's a thing called the hospital pass, um, which is when you, so you, you have the ball and you pass it to a friend. And he is so intent on catching the ball that his eyes are only on that. And as he finally catches it, he gets flattened by the competition. Um, and, there, and maybe there's an equivalent thing in American football. But that, that, there is an element of that about um, when I look at what's happening on the Democratic side, is that people are so desperately replaced Trump, they haven't thought about the consequences of what might follow from that. Well, if Biden is elected, he might take the House and the Senate with him. So for better or for worse, he might be able to uh, wield power pretty effectively, as I say, for better yeah. or for worse. You know, there is, there is, exactly. There is, that offers the chance to do these things. I mean, America is a country which does regenerate itself. It's not, you know, you look, go back 100 years ago, then you've got Teddy Roosevelt, you've got progressives, you've got a big change then. And other places, you know, I, I will end with one anecdote, which, um, or not up to you whether we end, but, 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 but years ago, in 1980, I went as a young man to San Francisco. And I, and this was in the previous book of ours, and I went, I stayed with a friend's um, uncle. We were staying in a house in San Francisco. And I was taken to a sauna, rather strangely, where I met a man called Milton, who asked whether I came from Britain and whether I knew Margaret Thatcher, and I said I didn't. And then he told me that Margaret Thatcher was going to privatize all these companies. She was going to take on the trade unions and she was going to change the way that Britain worked. And I sat there and I thought that he was on some kind of strange drugs. And indeed, later that 
trip. I went to go watch The Grateful Dead, and it seemed a less psychedelic experience than listening to <laughs> Milton talking about all these reforms that were going to happen mm -hmm. and how Britain was going to change. I then went back to England and discovered Milton on my television everywhere because it was Milton Friedman. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> who, who, who Thatcher followed. And my point about it was, for me, at the time, I found the idea that Britain could change then totally unrealistic. Britain was a place where you've got taught in candlelight because there were trade unions on strike the whole time. Public industries were perfectly the norm. And this woman came in and changed it. So it is possible, I think, for people to do enormous things. Well, let's hope you are right. With that, I, I will let you go. Uh, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Um, uh, my guest has been John Micklethwaite. His new book, written in collaboration with Adrian Woolridge, is entitled The Wake-Up Call, Why the Pandemic Has Exposed the Weakness of the West and How to Fix It. John, thanks very much. Thank you very much for reading it. Thank you. Bye. Take care.